You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so before we get started, um, I'm an adamant note taker, and you don't have to be an adamant note taker, but I can talk about the benefits of taking handwritten notes for hours and hours and hours, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I just want you to know that this sermon will be, will be given in a way for the note taker. So note takers, I'm with you. Um, we, we're going through three kind of main ideas that I'll spend time in each, right? And so the fir- if you're taking notes, the first theme we'll be at, um, or the first topic is called the individual fight. The individual fight. And then the second is called the victorious fighter. The victorious fighter. <clears throat> and then finally, the third is the freedom to fight. The freedom to fight. So that's our outline, and I'm just going to jump in um, right at the beginning here, the individual fighter, and reread verses um, 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the but at the beginning of this, the but is, is, uh, signifies a change in tone, a change in the conversation. Timothy um, has received from Paul in this letter kind of these, this doctrinal instruction, this leadership instruction, and now Timothy, or, or Paul rather, is, is, changing the con- is changing the conversation um, because really those previous chapters are full of things that can be daunting, right? Lists of sins, warnings, those things. Um, so Paul's starting here, changing the conversation and starting with encouragement. You, O oh man of God, it's meant as an encouragement, a reminder of his identity in Christ um, and, and how he sits. So starting out with a reminder of that, flee these things. So you, O oh man of God, flee these things, um, which flee these things literally translates to seek safety in flight, which I can't think about um, or hear without thinking of this, the famous scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is hanging on the edge and simply screams, fly, you fools. Um, get out as fast as you can, because without fleeing, doom is imminent, right? So what are the things we're supposed to flee from? It's exactly those things I was talking about, those daunting things in First Timothy, false teachers, bad doctrine, youthful lusts, foolishness, idolatry, the idol of money. These are the things Paul is saying, flee from. And so they've just run amok in the church in Ephesus. It's a mess, right? And Timothy needs not only doctrine, though. He needs encouragement. He needs a reminder of what to pursue. He needs a reminder of who he is in Christ. Um, so Paul, Paul beautifully pairs this call to flee with, a, with also a call to pursue. Um, yeah, and so we're called in in addition to Timothy, we're called to set our minds and bodies on a course to pursue these things as well as believers, right? So what does Paul tell us to pursue? Um, Paul lists six virtues, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Um, But really, I think, and I'll unpack this for you, um, that there's three kind of overarching themes for us um, to pursue. So let's, let's zone in on them. The first two, so Um, consider the first righteousness and godliness righteousness not necessarily sinlessness right but actions that are in harmony 
with God's will. Um, that means if we do sin as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we walk in repentance with one another. We turn away from sin and we follow him. Godliness, obligation in life structured around Jesus, not simply a life that has Jesus on Sunday or on Wednesday or on Thursday, um, but a life centered around him. Right? Those two things, righteousness and godliness, really relate to um, how we pursue a right relationship with God. Right? They're both words that describe how we as the individual relate to God. And then second, continuing on, faith and love. Faith being linked to what is true. Faith defined by our ability to entrust ourselves to Jesus and then grow out of that. And then love, brotherly, familial love, the same love Jesus says when he says, love your brothers and sisters, or love your neighbor as yourself, rather, is, is the love Paul's talking about here. So faith and love being our, our pursuit of actions that define a Christian life, right? So the very first is how we pursue the right relationship with God, and then based on that, we can pursue actions that, that Christians do, faith and love. And then finally, the third, steadfastness and gentleness, steadfastness being patience, endurance, perseverance, gentleness, humility, caring, empathy. Those two relate to the manner in which to carry out the previous and to relate to the world. So we have really, in, in fighting the good fight, we're pursuing a right relationship with God, we're pursuing actions from a place of obedience, then we're pursuing a manner in which we act in doing these things, right? So it's not just a list of virtues that have no meaning. It's this, then this, then this. Which brings us to the next part of the verse, fight the good fight. Paul is literally saying, engage in the warfare that is good and right. He's calling Timothy to soldier on. But this struggle isn't specific to Timothy, right? Believers in the room, we know this. It's a struggle we are engaged in because of our faith and through our faith. It's a struggle for all those who believe. It's a struggle towards obedience. It's the struggle to walk in repentance with brothers and sisters. We can all personally relate um, to one of the four idols that I'm going to talk about right now, um, where we really believe that all sin, all manifestations of sin come from one of these four idols. So for those who struggle with acceptance, it's walking in vulnerability and being fully known, even though you are worried what people might think if they knew the real you, right? For those who struggle with power, it's releasing authority and being humble, even though you want credit and all authority in work, in your family, in all aspects of your life. For those of us who struggle with comfort, it's making your dirty parts known, opening up your home or life, especially since it's against your nature. And then for those of us who struggle with control, it's letting go in situations where God's glory and sovereignty are best displayed. These are the idols that we deal with, and this is what Paul is telling us to pursue. This is what fighting the good faith, fight of faith looks like. Which leads me to my second point this morning, the victorious fighter. <clears throat> Let me continue in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made good confession. Let's pause. Paul is simply yet profoundly reminding Timothy here of his identity in Christ. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is what you have gained. 
this is what you have. You're not working towards this. You have this. That is what I want us to grasp and try and understand. Paul isn't talking about a pastoral calling here when he says the life that you've been called to. He's talking about the call to live. He is talking about the call that you, believer in the room, you have answered and are now living in. He's talking about your decision to follow Christ. Do you remember that day? Most of us do. Not that we remember the hour or the date, um, but we can recall the place and people that led us there. And we remember our baptism. We remember that specific time and place where we realized that we were so moved by the gospel, our, our lives so dramatically altered by this good news that we made a decision to publicly profess this in front of many peers. Many witnesses heard your good confession. Remember that? What an encouragement it is for me to remember that day. What a beautiful joy it is for us as parish family members to remind each other of that day. You know, <clears throat> I recently got married to my wife, Micah, and yep, it's awesome. Um, and we were on our honeymoon, just a wonderful, wonderful trip, um, just awesome. And toward the end of the trip, Micah asked me a question, and this is one of the reasons that I love her so much. It's questions like this that are simple in their asking but profound in their implication. Um, she said, what are our traditions going to be? And I thought for a minute and said, traditions? We got married seven days ago. <laughs> we have no traditions. Uh, so far, our traditions are pizza and Netflix. But, but I, I was adamant. Traditions just happen. They are things we do one year, and the next year we say, let's just do that again. Um, those are our traditions. And we kind of laughed because she laughs at all my jokes. Um, but we kind of laughed, and we left the question there in science for a second. And then she said, let's be a family that celebrates. Let's be a family that celebrates everything. And I thought about it for a second, and I'm not a curmudgeon, so I said, yeah, of course, let's celebrate everything. Let's do that. We can be that. Um, and we started talking about our future and our, our future children, and don't get excited, nothing on the horizon there. But um, we started talking about our future children, and I say, I do want to celebrate our kids' birthdays. I do. I want that to be a cool celebration. But the day they become believers, the day they experience true birth, that's the celebration for our family. I want my kids to look back and think, yeah, birthdays were cool. That was fun. But when I became a believer, that family was nuts. When I got baptized, that party was ridiculous. Right? Why is this day so special? For the believers in the room, it's the day that we give up. It's the day that we realize we can't fight the good fight of faith anymore. All those things we talked about pursuing, righteousness, right? Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We can't do it. We are not going to experience victory there. But we know at that day that somebody has for us, right? My default was harshness, not gentleness. It was retribution, not love. It was wrath, not righteousness. My default's doubt, not faith. So we get to a point on that day when we cry out like the man in Mark 10, the blind man. And if you're unfamiliar with this text, let me read it quickly. It's Mark 10, uh, 46 to 52. Um, <clears throat> and they came to Jericho. And he, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, 
Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and says, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he springs up and came to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovers his sight and followed him on the way. This is us, believers. We are blind. We hear Jesus. And on that day we have come believers, we cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus calls us. He does the calling, right? He calls us, and we throw off our cloaks. We spring toward him, and our faith makes us well. And then what does he do? And then we follow him. Do you get that? He makes us well. We are made well by faith, and then we follow him. Then we're obedient. Then we pursue, right? We pursue those things. Things. Excuse me. <clears throat> so the question that the non-believer might have is, who is Jesus then? Why does he have this authority? Why is Paul reminding Timothy here and us by result of our identity in Christ and the good confession we made in front of many witnesses? Well, Jesus is that victor. He is the only one who fought the good fight and succeeded. What the Gospels are explicit about, what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are explicit about is that God comes down to earth in the form of Jesus, right? Both fully man, fully God, to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. Hebrews 7 calls Jesus holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the nations. Jesus lived and lives in full righteousness. He walks in full harmony with the obligations of God. He lives in full godliness, a life structured around the goals of God. He lives with full faith, belief enough to walk on water, heal the sick, miraculously feed the hungry. He lives with amazing and unmatched love, sacrifice for all, service for all. His actions are done with steadfastness, perseverance, sacrifice, pressing on even towards his death. And he completes all of this with gentleness. Gentleness towards his betrayer Judas or Peter who denies him three times. Even through all of this, he dies a death that satisfies a just and righteous God. His death on the cross is our final payment. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 2 quickly, um, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And continuing in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is our victor. This is our savior. Through his death, he paid the final payment for our sins, our failures, our shortcomings. And more than that, he's raised up from the dead. He is victorious over death. Without the resurrection, victory doesn't happen for us. 
Which brings me to my last point, the freedom to fight. The freedom to fight. Picking back up in um, 1 Timothy verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, in which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So just to recap to where we are, in the first section we review the things that we're urged to pursue, right? The values we're urged to pursue. And then in the second portion, um, we talk about our failure in pursuit of these things, our need for a savior and Christ being that victor. And so now we sit in this last place where, where we truly have victory on our behalf through Christ on the cross. Um, by choosing to follow Christ, we are, we are sacrificing our striving and we are instead living in this place of rest. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, after reminding Timothy of his good confession and identi identity in Christ, Paul is still urging Timothy and us to keep the commandment unstained and keep it free from reproach. So he reminds Timothy who he is in Christ and us by, by default. And then saying, still, keep the commandment unstained and, above reproach, and be above reproach. He's charging him to still walk in obedience and keeping the commandments, but from a place of rest in victory, not a place of striving for it. Then continuing in verse 15, Paul is reminding us what we work toward and out of. So from a place of grace from Christ, from a place of victory in him, from a place of rest, we are now freed up to pursue the things that we originally talked about. And then so continuing through this, the end of this passage, um, you'll notice that Paul finishes the portion of the letter by, by hanging many different titles on Jesus. Paul does a few things in doing this, in using this adorning language, but primarily he worships. He reminds himself who Jesus is, who God is, and who we serve. He who is blessed, the only sovereign, king of kings, Lord of Lords, holder of immortality, which, which simply means that he's the keeper and bestower of immortality, right? It's worship. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let it be. It's worshipful. But it's also encouraging. This brother and sister, this king is worthy of our pursuit. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of this glory. And because of Christ, we are out now able to deliver and pursue. John Calvin puts it this way. If earthly soldiers do not hesitate to fight when the result is doubtful and there is risk of death, how much more bravely should we fight who are promised and certain of victory? We pursue in victory, not for it. Second Corinthians says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might find and become the righteousness of God. We, the people of God, are now the righteousness of God. We were wrath and now we're righteous. We are in harmony with him. Consider the struggles, the idols that I spoke about earlier, um, the struggle to walk in repentance and obedience in those things, um, fleeing from our root idols, right? So for those who struggled with acceptance, it's walking in vulnerability and being fully known because through Christ you are fully accepted and beloved. For those who struggle with power, it's releasing authority and being humble because Christ has all the power, all the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 
For those who struggle with comfort, it's making your dirty parts known because the ultimate comfort is being an adopted son of the living God. And for those who finally struggle with control, it's letting go because God created all matter and controls all time and is actively sustaining everything in the universe. It's doing this because God, not this for anything. If you do this for anything, you get nothing. But we do this because of what God has done. It's beautiful. So for the believers in the room, as I, as I wrap this up, um, I want us to leave with this assurance. Because of his victory on our behalf, we are no longer marked by our failure. We're no longer marked by our inability to pursue these things. And though we may experience failure in the pursuit, we certainly aren't identified by it. Through him, we are identified as victorious. More than that, we have a God who knows our pains in failure. He walked this life in the person of Jesus so he could see and feel and taste and know what it's like. He knows what it's like to struggle towards his goal. This is the warm blanket. This is the amazing conclusion of the gospel. Psalm 56, the psalmist writes, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This blows me away. He has kept count of my tossings. He has my tears in his bottle. He knows your sleepless nights regarding sin. He knows the sins that you've hurt other people with. He knows the tears. They are in his book. Not, not a record of wrongs, but an account of sorrows because he carries them for us, right? We can go forth pursuing these things as new creations that we are. And when we fail, we are free to persevere. We are free to keep going because there is grace for me and there is grace for you, believer. If you're not believing that this morning, leave here believing that. And so finally, in conclusion to the non-believers in the room, I say this, there is grace for you too. You, have, you may have had a hard life. You may have been burned by the church or other Christians, and we can't minimize that pain. In fact, this people, my sojourn family, which I love, will only let you down if you think that they're going to be your savior. The only one who knows the full count of your tossings. The only one who can possibly know your sorrow, all of your hurt and pain, is the God of the universe. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to seek him and he wants you to find him. And at the end of days, at the end of your days and the end of this earth, he wants to welcome you home with open arms, home to a place where you always should have been, and say to you, well done, son. Well done, daughter. He's a good, good father. Will you start to believe that this morning? Will you start to even explore that? Will you start to doubt your doubts and begin to plead with him for the faith to step out and truly know him? This is a place where it's okay to do that. We are going to attempt to answer any questions you have, and I promise that we won't be able to answer them, all of them. But... I do promise that we're going to walk with you until he does. Pray with me.